Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. One of the most overused phrases I've found is Renaissance Man, but it's not overused or inappropriate for one person I met with recently, Walter Massey. Walter Massey has been the leader of Morehouse College, the University of California, University of Chicago, the Art Institute, the National Science Foundation, Argonne Labs, and now he's leading the effort to get the giant Magellan Telescope funded by the U.S. government and by private institutions. I sat down with him recently at the University of Chicago to talk about what he's most proud of having achieved in this incredible life he's had. Dr. Massey, uh, you have been, I would say, a renaissance man. You've been involved in education, the arts, business, science. Uh, of all the things you've done in your incredible career, what is it that you're most proud of? Well, actually, I'm proud of all of those things. I think the position that uh, get, has given me more satisfaction is going back to Morehouse College, which was my alma mater, uh, as president. I went back in 1995. And my wife, Shirley, and I, when we talk about the various things we have done, we agree that that was a lot of fun, but as I said, satisfying in a number of ways. To go back to your alma mater and to preside over their graduation of about 5,000 African-American men. Let's talk about your background for a moment. Um, you grew up in Mississippi when it was very segregated. What was it like growing up in Mississippi in the 1940s and 50s? My mother was a school teacher. I'm an elementary school principal. I had an aunt who was a school teacher. I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I didn't want to be a school teacher. <laughs> uh, I thought I might want to be an engineer. I have no idea. I think I just heard the word engineer. I knew I would go, probably go to college because even in Mississippi in those days, um, my family went off to college, mostly in Mississippi, at Mississippi institutions. I didn't know I would wind up at Morehouse, and that was serendipity, as a lot of my life has been. It's won this scholarship that allowed me to go from the 10th grade to Morehouse, and that really changed my life. But you grew up in an all-segregated area. I assume you were not uh, going to lunches and dinners with whites at that time. No, no. The only lunches and dinners we came close to was working in the kitchen. My grandmother worked as a domestic, and even my mother, who, who worked as a elementary school elementary school teacher and principal in the summers uh, sometimes worked as a domestic. We were in a totally segregated, segregated sounds too mild. It was uh, apartheid. Like, Did you worry for your safety and life at times? Not constantly. You one had to be careful and you were t there were things you knew you were not to do from a very young age. White women were very dangerous white men also, but in particular things, white girls and white women. You would have places you didn't go. Um, so there were modes of behavior which you expected or you learned to adapt to. But I didn't wake up every morning think, uh, thinking I would be lynched. We lived in a community that was a fairly warm community. I had a big family, cousins all lived all around me. and. I would say in spite 
of the harsh segregation around us within our little bubble, you might say, as much as you could keep it. I had a, a, a good childhood. You got a scholarship to go to Morehouse when it was, uh, you had only completed the 10th grade. Yes. So what happened to the 11th and 12th grade? Did you didn't need that? And you, you went to Morehouse, weren't you kind of young to get to college? I was 16 and it, I was part of a program. So I wasn't the only one. There were about, it had been going on for three years and I was in the third year of this experiment. And uh, there were about 15 of us in my group and there had been some before. So the college had sort of adjusted to these young uh, kids coming in who didn't have courses. So we had good counselors, we had very good teachers, and evidently we were smart. I didn't know it because uh, we were able to not just survive, but we were, we were, I would say we were some of the most uh, accomplished students in the college. Okay, so you go to Morehouse uh, and you decide you want to major in physics. So was that a very popular major at Morehouse at the time? I was the only physics major for my entire four years <laughs> in my class. There was one before me and one before him. And what did you tell your parents? You were going to be a physics major. What did they say? My parents were very good. Um, my mother, I think, would have wanted me to be the typical mother, to be a doctor. And I got a PhD. That was something. But uh, they were comfortable with what I, whatever I chose. I came to physics through mathematics. I was not a tinkerer. I was not a person who did experiments. And in fact, I was not that attracted to laboratory science, but I liked mathematics and I was pretty good at it. And I took my, when I took my first physics course, I saw that here was a way mathematics could be used to try to understand the world around us. So you majored in physics, you graduated from Morehouse, mm -hmm. and then you decided to get a PhD in physics at uh, Wash University in St. Louis. Why did you pick Washington University? A very good school, but how did you pick that school? My Physics teacher at Morehouse, his name was Hans Sabinus Hobart Christensen. He was Danish white uh, gentleman with a PhD from Harvard. And he became my mentor and, and grew into a friend. But as I said, I was the only, in my advanced physics classes at Morehouse, I was the only one in the class. So it was like the Oxford tutorial system, just Chris and myself. And Chris recommended uh, that I go to Washu. This is 1960 now, and because I worked at Morehouse one year, and it, it wasn't clear that there was every place was going to be welcoming or nurturing and supportive of a young black person who wanted to be a physicist. And Chris thought Washu had that environment, and it turned out that success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. When you got your Ph.D., what did you decide to do? I came to Argonne here in Chicago as a uh, postdoc. And Argonne was run by the University of Chicago, so I was also associated with the University of Chicago then. And my first job was working uh, with a group at Argonne National Laboratory. Okay, so you worked at Argonne. Eventually, you got a teaching position at the University of Illinois in uh, Urbana? I did. And then you did that for a while you were teaching physics? I went to Urbana for two reasons. I, I loved Argonne, and I loved my research, but that's what I was doing. I lived right here in Hyde Park, about, oh, four blocks from here, um, Drexel Avenue. We could see it from where we were seated. 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and from where we are now, you could see the city burning, and I could see it from my apartment. And it really became clear to me that uh, I say I had this feeling that I was just not contributing to the civil rights movement to the degree that I felt that I ought to. I was going to Argonne doing my research, coming home. I tutored kids and around the community, uh, but I wanted to be more engaged. And I thought if I went to a college campus where there were students, I would be more engaged in activities. So I went to Urbana for that reason, and Urbana turned out to be the very best place in the world for the kind of physics I did. You did that for a while, and then you got recruited to go to Brown University? I did. And you became the dean of students at Brown? The dean of the college. Dean of the college. And um, were there a lot of African-American professors then at Brown? Actually, uh, at that point, there were quite a few. And interestingly, I asked that because I was just reminiscing with some of my old friends about what we call a golden age at Brown. Brown, and then when I went there in 1969 and 70, we had Professor May in physics, engineering, chemistry, political science, history, three in English, the general counsel was black, the associate head of uh, human resources. We had a wonderful black community. It didn't grow uh, linearly, it didn't even last for a while. But yes, the period I was there in the early 70 was a right, so very Brown. vibrant period. You were at Brown for a number of years, and then you got recruited to be the head of Argonne? I did. And so what does Argonne actually do? Argonne uh, is what's called a, a general science national laboratory. It's one of the laboratories that the Department of Energy owns, but they're operated by contractors. The university operates Argonne. So for much of its history, it was involved in nuclear reactors. Now it does. Uh, basic science, a lot of materials science, uh, and low temperature science. That's why I was there in, in the 60s. It also has a very large facility called the Advanced Photon Source, which is like a, a giant high-energy x-ray machine that can you know, penetrate through materials and examine them. It also has some of the world's fastest computers. Uh, it has a big program in energy storage. Uh, advanced research on batteries. So it's a broad-based uh, energy research laboratory now. 
Right. So you're running Argonne. Um, is that a place that was um, filled with a lot of black physicists and mathematicians, or it was fairly white? I think it was fairly is not. Fairly is an understatement. Mostly white. Mostly, overwhelmingly white. Overwhelmingly okay. white. All right, so you're doing that for a number of years, and then you get a chance to be the head of the National Science Foundation? I did. All of a sudden, you're handing out money on behalf of the federal government, the National Science Foundation. Sure. Did you find you were more popular than you oh, had been before? Oh, you won't believe it. <laughs> yeah. It's always best to be on the side of being asked for money than to ask for it. So you're doing that for a few years, yeah. and then you get a chance to be the provost of the University of California system. Is that right? right? That's correct. So why did you take that position? It's a great job, and uh, but you'd want to be a head of a major university? I did by that time. <laughs> Through my transition from doing physics to administering science at Oregon and then NSF, I began to see that I really had a knack for, um, how should I say, running organizations. Uh, and that people, people liked working for me. And, and I liked working with people. And I saw that I could get things done of areas that I cared about, science education, science for underrepresented groups, these kinds of things that I couldn't do as an individual scientist. All right, so you took the position, you're the provost, the number two position in all of the University of California system, maybe the leading public education system in the United States, in higher true. education. Yeah. And so you have a chance to be the, the chancellor, the overall head of the University of California system, if you'd stayed there for another year or two. And then all of a sudden, uh, your alma mater comes calling, Morehouse, and they say, come back and be the president of this small college in Atlanta, not the head of the University of California system. Why didn't you say, look, I'm going to be the head of the University of California system. It's a better job than being the head of Morehouse. Why did you not do that? I did say that. I said that for several months okay. <laughs> when the, to the, my uh, alumni and friends and trustees. I said, no, you're crazy. I've only, I've only been here a little while. My whole career has been in big science, big institutions. I mean, that's, that's what I know. But um, it, I thought about it. It really, really was a family decision. One day surely surprised me by flying in my two sons for dinner, and I came home for work, and there they were. And we talked a lot about it, and reached the decision that I could probably do more in areas that I cared about, some of which I just mentioned, uh, at Morehouse, one. Secondly, that I really owed practically everything that I had achieved to my beginnings at Morehouse, and that I ought to do this. Our youngest son, uh, the one who lives in Amsterdam now, Eric, said, you know, being head of the University of California would be great, Dad, but you could get a lot more accomplished at being at Morehouse. So how many years were you the president of Morehouse? I was there 12 years. 12 years, okay. So you're, while you're at Morehouse, you get an opportunity to go on the board of the Bank of America. No, I did that in California. Okay. Because then they all, I went on the board of the old bank. The old Before bank we merged of, right. and we were located in San Francisco. And then at one point they said, you should be the chairman of the board of Bank of America. Is that right? That's right. Wasn't that simple, but that's right. <laughs> and did you want to be chairman of the board of Bank of America? I had no time to think about it. It came about so quickly. It came as a result of a shareholders meeting in April of 2009. After the shareholders had put on the proxy the agenda, uh, a proposition to separate the chair from the CEO, as you know, in most 
corporation. That's a combined position. And the shareholder vote uh, got the most, it's got a majority of the votes. Now, the board didn't have to accept that shareholder vote's uh, recommendations in that regard, but the board did. And just after the board meeting, the then chairman, Ken Lewis, said the board uh, executive committee uh, was going to recommend it to the board that I be the chairman. This is on the way into the meeting. And I said, how long do I have to think about this? He said, about a minute. <laughs> All right. So um, then after you get that position, a couple of days later, the federal government calls you up and says, guess what? We got to talk to you. Uh, you got some problems. Uh, they told you that you had to do some serious things to fix the Bank of America. Is that right? That's correct. I thought uh, when I accepted the position, I thought, wow, it's prestigious. It's an honor. And I thought, well, I can, I can do it. I've been on, I've been on the what, 15 years. So I wasn't a novice in the board room or with, you know, by then a financial institution. I'd been on the board of McDonald's where we had a non-executive chair. At one point, Motorola had a non-executive chair, so did BP. So I had seen what they did. It's about a two-day-a-week job, and you um, uh, preside over meetings. You help with the agenda. You keep in touch with the CEO. I said, "Well, I can, I can do that." Until the Fed called and uh, asked me, asked, summoned me to Richmond, which is the office of the Federal Reserve Branch that oversees. Uh, Bank of America, which is located in Charlotte, and asked me to bring some other directors with me because I didn't want to take this message back to my colleague by myself. And the message they gave me turned this into a full-time job. So they basically said that you had some financial problems at Bank of America and you need to make some changes. Yes. And ultimately, you had to spend a lot of time fixing the Bank of America. Is that right? That's correct. And so then you led an effort to pick uh, Brian Moynihan, who's still the uh, CEO of Bank of America. Is that right? That's correct. So that worked out okay. That's worked out fantastic. Brian, I think, has just done a wonderful. It's not just my opinion. He's been chosen CEO of the year, I think, a couple of times, not just in the financial industry, but throughout corporate America. And the bank has done very well. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Suppose somebody says, I'm watching this and I, I'm a young person. I'm in college now or high school or graduate school and I want to be Walter Massey and I grow up. What would you say is the best way to prepare to be someone like you? There's no substitute for hard work. It's just not. I'll start with that. But also pursue things that you're interested in, things that you like. And especially if you're in high school and college, uh, don't commit totally so quickly to uh, been totally absorbed in one thing. I mean, you may, you may have to, because if you're going to do things like computer science, maybe even physics, it really does take a lot of time. But I urge young people to study other things. You know, take courses outside of your, your specialty. Get some broad-based learning. First, you're going to enjoy it. And secondly, it might open up other doors that you may not even realize. Would you say race relations in the United States are much better than when you were growing up in Mississippi, or do you think we've made less progress than you think we should have made? Both. I think, uh, I think they're much better uh, than when I was growing up. I would not be in a position to even have this interview. And there are so many other people in positions of importance. There are so many... Uh, uh, people who occupied areas you know, I never thought I would see them in. But I would have hoped it would be better. It's certainly been a lot of progress. And somehow we are in an area, era now where in spite of the progress, uh, race relations in certain areas has become very scary. You know, some of the things that uh, one reads about now remind me of growing up in Mississippi. Let me ask you right now about something you're involved in right now, which is the Giant Magellan Telescope. Uh, you're leading the effort to get people to fund the Giant Magellan Telescope. Why do we need the Giant Magellan Telescope since we have the, the, the Webb Telescope? It seems to be sending back pretty nice pictures. How much better is the um, Giant Magellan going to be? Four times better. Four times better. <laughs> Four times better resolution, which means the pictures will be sharper. But the science, the way it will work, the web, as you've seen those pictures, very sharp. But they are identifying parts of, of galaxies and space, almost back to the beginning of the universe, that people haven't seen. They can't focus, it cannot focus, however, more sharply as we would like to be able to identify objects. So the web will identify a portion of space. The GMT, Giant Magellan Telescope, can in effect zoom in on that space, uh, have finer resolution, look at it more clearly. And in addition to that, we'll have a, a set of instruments which can collect that light, analyze it, and see, for example, does it contain signs of oxygen or water? So they'll be complementary. All right, but how much does it cost before we get the Giant Magellan Telescope? We're estimating now about a little over $2 billion. $2 billion, and where is that money coming from? It, about half is coming from private sources, University of Chicago being one of the 11 
partners will put up about half, and the federal government is now uh, negotiate, negotiating with the National Science Foundation to come up with the other half. You know, I've often thought the way you could raise money for the giant Magellan telescope is to take away the name Magellan because he didn't put up any money for it and let somebody very wealthy, Elon Musk or Bill Gates or somebody, say, we'll name it after them and put up a billion dollars. You ever thought of that? We think of that every day. I do. <laughs> yes. You have a billionaire that you like well, to this video. I think you need a multi-billionaire, but there might be some out there. If you name it after them, it's a big uh, big naming opportunity. But they Actually, I'm laughing, but we do. We have naming opportunities all the way from a mirror, uh, an instrument that will look for exoplanets uh, for $20 million, uh, $10 million. The mirrors can be named. We actually have one mirror named, uh, Mitchell, a generous donor to the University of Arizona, $20 million. Uh, the telescope dome itself uh, is $100 million. And you can name the whole, we can negotiate the right, price okay. for the whole telescope. What are they going to name me after anything, the Walter Massey, anything? Or anything named after you? I think they have some porta potties down there. <laughs> so life of people on Earth is going to be better if that is funded because of what? We're going to discover that there's life somewhere else in the universe, and how is that going to make our life better? I don't think it's going to make your life better in the sense of, of delivering material comfort, material uh, advantages. I think it's going to make one human life more interesting and probably inspire people to think about their life differently. Uh, the artist Jeff Koons, who's a friend of mine, uh, says that when he looks at those images from the James Webb telescope or the others that show you almost the beginning of the universe, you see these galaxies, it just makes you realize how special it is to be living in these times when you can discover these things and how special it is to be a human being. I mean, how improbable it is that there's something like us that has been generated over all of these years, and now we still exist. Do you believe there is life in the universe somewhere else other than the Earth? I do. Now, why do I say that? It's just probability. There was uh, Enrico Fermi, <laughs> who used to be here, actually is purported to have said where is everybody? You know, why haven't we heard from them? Because just given the number of stars with what now they're calling exoplanets, planets that um, look like they would be situated close enough in a position with a star to have life, they have, they've already discovered 5,000, 5,000 in our galaxy. And given the number of galaxies, billions in the universe, uh, this just seems to be uh, probably highly, wholly unlikely, you know, from a mathematical, statistical point of view, that you wouldn't have conditions like we have on there. But so, I don't have any other reason. So as you look back on your life, an incredible career, what would you say is the legacy that you would like to have people think about you? What, what would you most proud of having done? Is it the uh, position at, uh, at Morehouse or the, your scientific leadership? What would you say is your legacy? to your children, grandchildren, and your fellow Americans? Well, I, it wouldn't be any particular accomplishment. I would hope it would be that people would realize that you can accomplish a great deal in life no matter where you start. Uh, if you first, I do think luck is involved, a lot in luck. But if you have the, if you have the right mentors, 
um, the right support, and if you yourself are willing to work hard at it, and and I would be curious enough and bold enough to take advantage of opportunities when they arise. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.